0: talk tonight is called A Blue Hole in the Heart. And it's about wisdom. Uh, For those of you who have been here for the whole retreat and for those of you who um, have done the metta practice, sometimes um, it's helpful to be given the context of the two practices. Uh, and there's a great quotation from Srinasar Gadara Maharaj, who was a, a guru in India, last century. And he said, Love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. And in some ways that's the story of our spiritual life, coming to understand what love is and what wisdom is, and how those um, two streams flow together in and out of our life, and how to weave them together. So tonight I'd like to talk about wisdom. The aspect of wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Uh, Some of us like to hear about, love tells me I'm everything. And we don't always like to hear, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. (laughs) It can be helpful for us to know that for the first 500 years after the Buddha's death, that the Buddha was remembered as an emptiness not as a, not as like the statue that appears on this altar. So sometimes he was represented as an empty seat and sometimes um, a tree with no one beneath it, sometimes as a pair of footprints and sometimes as the wheel of Dharma that he set turning. When he was alive he referred to himself as the Tathagata, one thus gone. One who had left no trace. And it was only 500 years after the Buddha's death that there were Greek settlers that had um, connected or converted to Buddhism and they were the ones who first personified the Buddha as the Greek god Apollo. And so that's the imagery that we receive nowadays through the um, Buddha statues. But just remember, keep in mind that originally the representation wasn't a tree with no one beneath it or just a pair of footprints. You know, it's a beautiful uh, thing to know, actually. There is a cave that I have spent time in um, when I teach in Upper Burma. And it's been a very inspiring place for me to visit because there is such a a beautiful energy there of one thus gone. It's like there have been many fully enlightened beings who have practiced in that cave but it's not that they started fully enlightened in there. But when we think of um, leaving no trace, or being um, represented as an emptiness, we can see that that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. But it's the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the actual experience that I have, like in that cave, or um, one time when I was in Ireland I visited uh, those beehive, a beehive uh, hut, where I experienced the same uh, beauty. It was like a saint had lived there. And one can just feel the peace that's left when somebody becomes free. So total peace um, is the absence of attachment aversion, or delusion. And we often, um, we love the smell of that even, just like we, we can feel the scent of a flower from far away. We can smell that scent inside of us while we're sitting here or walking. We, we know we have that potential for that kind of wisdom and freedom. A wanderer asked the Buddha How is it? Does the self exist? And the Buddha remained silent. Then how is it? Does the self not exist? And the Buddha remained silent. And then the wanderer got up and left and the Buddha turned to his attendant, Ananda. And he said, if I had answered that the self exists, that would have encouraged eternalism. And if I had answered, the self does not exist, that would have encouraged nihilism. So the Buddha taught the middle way, grounded in insight, that a person isn't endowed with any permanent identity, but that a person isn't pure illusion, that we make moral choices that have consequences. So everything exists is one extreme and nothing exists is the other extreme and the truth is the middle path and we're meant to explore this for ourselves. In the mindfulness practice we're developing a taste for liberation. The Buddha said that Uh, Just as the ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so his teaching has only one taste, the taste of liberation. And that taste uh, that we develop uh, means that we lose the taste for confusion and ignorance as a way of life and start to prefer liberation as a way of life. And it requires great patience to practice this as a way of life. So with mindfulness and some continuity with it in our retreat or in our daily life, the heart becomes lighter, less entangled. And because the awareness isn't tied or oppressed by experience, we see that our awareness can be free of being oppressed by experience. So sometimes that is described as disentanglement or disenchantment with experience itself. It's said that when we pay attention to our experience that we can come to understand anicca, impermanence or change. Life is alive. It's moving. And our attempts to control it are aversion and attachment. So as we slow down, we look carefully, we come to understand change. We can come to understand dukkha, that we never know what's going to happen. Unsatisfactoriness of experience. And then the third the thing we can come to understand is anatta, or empty, emptiness. Uh, and this, this teaching around emptiness is very subtle. The Buddha representing himself as an emptiness is quite profound when you think of that as one of the truths of existence. There's a purity to this practice because we're applying mindfulness to our ordinary life experience. When we're on retreat, we're not changing life in any way, we're just taking the time, like I described as alms, (laughs) we take the time to notice our direct experience of our body, the direct experience of our minds and hearts. We can see that when life becomes repetitive and boring and flat that we lack a certain quality of awareness that we're bringing to our experience and when we get identified with that way of being and we get busier and busier and less and less attentive, our experience will never be enough. And there's a weariness that comes from that. One of the reasons I gave an example this morning of making a commitment to being aware of um, tying my shoes for a three-month retreat is because I didn't consider that experience very important. And I would see how I would miss it over and over again. Because I thought getting out to my walking place was more important than the experience of tying my shoes. And this is what creates that weariness. That picking and choosing of one experience in our life as being more worthy of our attention than another. We don't always get reinforcement in our household life around the practice of each moment being enough or each moment being sufficient. I think that the imagery of the begging bowl uh, for the monastics is very important for us as householders to bring into our our understanding of our moment-to-moment practice. So, for example, in the Japanese language, the word for begging, mo- begging bowl means just enough. Uh, and so there, the, the practice on every level means that we're letting go of control. And we're receiving life as it is. You know, so that 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 experience, that the Buddha didn't stop begging for food at a certain point in his life that he thought he was really attained. He begged for food his whole life. Uh, Everyone who joined that order would go out and beg for food. And that that is meant to reinforce that sense of receiving life and appreciating uh, what we're given. So if we can approach our meals that way here, we often forget that there are so many people here at IMS who volunteer to support our practice. You know, there's, it's like this, this is priceless. If we paid everyone that, you know, supported you to be here, you couldn't afford to be here. And this is why the teachings are considered priceless. If you grew up in a Buddhist village, uh, you would know the people serving you. You would grow up with friends that ordained, you know, or you might have ordained as a monk or a nun when you were a little girl, or your friends would have. It, the, the, the interrelatedness between the people supporting you and your receiving uh, the teachings and working hard uh, is very inspiring. But still, that's what's happening here. And we can forget it. We get so caught up that we forget what we are actually receiving is so, so priceless. So the word, uh, just enough, means that when we receive our food that we understand how interconnected we are through generosity. And we are meant to really experience our utter dependence, this utter humility, which is meant to bring gratitude and joy. And this is not only meant to happen with food, uh, that we hopefully would would learn to start each day with our hands open and say, well, can this day be just enough for me to learn from? And I can assure you that each day will be more than (laughs) enough. (laughs) You know, there'll be so many things that have happened today for you, you couldn't possibly learn everything. It's so full. But it's because we don't have that attitude of having our hands open like a begging bowl and receiving each day. And then you can break this down to moments of the day. So when we receive in our bowl uh, desire, we tend to you know throw the food out <laughs> and say, "I don't want this." You know, I don't want to pay attention to sh- tying my shoes. I want to pay attention to the step. It's like we're we're picking and choosing what's in our bowl, and then we're un- we, we we're dissatisfied. It's not enough we can relate to the breath like this. It's like, if you can imagine that exquisiteness of just being able to receive a breath, as just enough. When we have this attitude, each moment is complete. And when we're very still and quiet, when we have those, the balance of concentration, mindfulness, energy, equanimity, it's it's so complete, the universe is touching us in those moments. And sometimes it's overwhelming, it's so enough. So the attitude of just enough is the antidote to a more subtle uh, or more obvious stream of dissatisfaction that runs through the course of our day, or lives. And when we're, we're, when we're not aware of dissatisfaction, our experience not being good enough, we often miss that we interpret that we're not good enough because our experience isn't good enough. And this is the critical key uh, to being a happy, relatively happy in life and not we jump from our experience not being good enough to, it's our, our, our failure, it's our fault. Rather than just not seeing clearly that we've made this interpretation and it's only because our hands haven't been open, we've been picking and choosing. One of the neighbors in the community here, uh, when the teacher cottage was built at the study center uh, that Steve and I stay in when we're here, uh, transplanted some peonies from her garden to uh, the, an area in the front of the cottage. Uh, so I find that this time of year, uh, the one of the most wonderful parts about being here, and I hope for you being here as a yogi, is when you get here, noticing these peony buds that are so tight and closed and hard. And then over the course of the time here, um, you'll start to see them swelling. And then there'll be, at some point, one petal that will come out. And it's so amazing. But some of the buds will still be closed and tight while others are just starting to open. Uh, And then, there's one um plant by our house that last year and this year it looks like it's not going to open. 2 years ago it did and maybe next year it will. But this year and last year it was it was just needing to stay closed. Do you have years like that? <laughs> <laughs> I had a year like that this year. <laughs> Do we uh, see ourselves like that? Can you see everyone in this room as a bud? And that we, we have these times in life when we're opening and some when we're closing. And the metaphor for awakening is a flower opening. But we all do it in our time and over the course of years that it'll be a process of unfolding closing up, unfolding, and it's a gradual, that gradual opening. Sometimes we can experience this process as one of, like, the heart opening being, it's just achingly beautiful. This process of awakening, it doesn't require striving and it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of anything. doesn't mean we have to make anything happen. And I recommend that when you start the day, that you treat it like, you know, just punching in you know, to work, <laughs> you know, just punch in when the early morning bell takes off and then at night when you lay down, punch out, you know. And that's all you have to do, you know. It's just, it, it happens by itself. And the more that we manipulate and control this experience, we get impatient. And it's so much bigger than us. It, this is such powerful medicine. There's a way in which when we're, when we're struggling so hard to get somewhere, which is just here, <laughs> which is so funny, you know. Over and over again, we're trying to make something happen, or trying to get somewhere, and all, all, you know, we're forgetting that we're trying to get here in the present moment. Uh, we have to understand that we we tend to, we tend to be conditioned by dominating experience versus just listening to experience and letting it be. Ultimately, um, this is that purification of motivation, and the purification of motivation happens by letting our tangles untangle themselves. And trusting, it's like when you bring the conditions together for the opening, like this retreat, we, we do open. Because life is moving, because life is alive, our defense system that we develop when we're young is aversion and attachment. Aversion to pain in the world, that running away from pain or the fear of the pain or trying to control it, uh, is, our, is our defense system. It's when the butt is closed and hard. Or the attachment to pleasure. That that's when we are we are trying to control life from moving, from changing. Once we start this practice and start to grasp what freedom is, we start to think that we can rip our petals open. And it's, this is the place in the retreat we are, so I want to warn you that we tend to reject our defense system when we start getting an idea that <laughs> I'm going to be free, and I'm going to do it now. Uh, and our system just will just shut down. You know, the, it's just this utter lack of trust because we can get very violent. And we won't even know we're being violent. You know, we'll just be, we'll hate aversion, we'll hate attachment versus learning how to yield to it to let it be, and actually bow to it. You know, we, we tend to hate the very thing that's protected us, our life. So instead of hating it, try respecting it. Bow to it. Thank you. Because as we gradually replace aversion and attachment with wisdom, with mindfulness, with loving-kindness, we have less and less need for the attempting to control life with aversion and attachment. So if if the wanting mind comes up and the averse or the fear or the aversion comes up, when there's awareness uh, with understanding with that, it's just like water. We t- it's no problem. We just see it clearly. It moves through and our awareness isn't tied to it. If you notice that it's really strong and intense, still it's possible to be with that primal wanting. You notice the body. You make a soft mental note, wanting, wanting, wanting. And you see how much we get caught with something outside of ourselves that's going to ho- fix us or make us okay or make things better than what they are. And hopefully we understand that. We have to have great compassion for ourselves. that we, We're suckers. You know, We get fooled over and over again that there's going to be something outside of us that's going to bring this happiness, some experience, whether it's a good sitting that we had two sittings ago, um, we can be the, we can suffer the most in life over a good sitting. (laughs) I mean, I saw myself for a few years be attached to this one sitting. I mean, it was so painful it was one experience and i just kept thinking that's how life should be and i was a diehard it just it took so long for me to think that oh maybe the rest of life is acceptable you know that's how dramatic it was but we can get attached to anything and we can make a problem out of anything that's our gift as human beings <laughs> <laughs> And we all know—I know you all know—how many days are left to this retreat, if not hours? Um, (laughs) Because when we're having a hard time here, we want to go home, you know. And then when it's when you're when you're golden and it's going good, you know, how many retreats have you planned? (laughs) And, And it's just incredible. We want to stay. Forever. We're so fickle. And we're meant to see that. We're meant to see how fickle we are based on pleasure and pain. Getting what we want versus not getting what we want. If you had control of awakening, you know, you would be so inflated. You know, we wouldn't get free if you were in control of this process. There was one retreat that I did that uh, was so hard that every night during the dharma talk, I used to make a calendar (laughs) and I would, it was a three month retreat and I would uh, amuse myself by making three months and I would, it was, it was so pathetic. I would, I would, I would draw all the days of the week into it. And then every, every night, just in case I made a mistake and I was going <laughs> to get to go home earlier, I would, I would check and I would, you know, X out the days I'd been there. You know, it was a hard retreat. You know, I'd never had that experience where it was so hard that I just was holding on and marking off the days. And then I've had retreats that I couldn't bear to leave because they weren't so well. You know, it's like, it'll keep changing for you. Ultimately, the human journey is one that's kind of ironic, because we start as infants, which were boundaryless, and then we start to learn the relative level of existence, where we really need to know and function well. This, we have to know this is a light, that's a fan, that's a Buddha, you know, this is wood, this is a microphone. These are, these are really important aspects of living in this world. When we start the journey to searching for something more than that, we have this search because we know, spiritually, that there is something more than that one dimensional layer of reality that separateness. So that separateness becomes a prison for us. Again, we don't have to reject that layer of reality. We start to search and practice and understand there's something more. So the mindfulness practice is a dissolving practice. In a way, the metta practice is a gluing practice. This is a dissolving practice. And what it's meant to dissolve is ignorance. It dissolves wrong view, which is that misperception of being separate. So we're dissolving being imprisoned by the conceptual layer of reality. And we start to see how we glue moments of experience together, of hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, thinking. We're gluing these moments together to create the sense of separate self. Knowing itself is a security to know something's a boat or a flower or a person. And because we think we know it, we miss the experience and we miss being alive. We can know things so well, we're cemented into a totally dead prison. And that's our tragedy as humans and we can see it in the world. So anytime we think that I am my body or I am my mind or I am my heart, I am my thoughts hopefully we're willing to face that that's a misperception and if we are also willing to face that we can fear, we can face the fear of loss, of the idea of who we are like how much have you planned to go back to this place at home, and this job, or these people. All that projection into the future is a form of security that actually imprisons us from being more alive in the present moment. So we can assure you uh, that if you really inquire into who I am, who are you, what is body, what is mine, that there's absolutely nothing to lose. There's no. We're not annihilating anything through understanding. We're only losing confusion or ignorance. We're cutting through that incredible uh, separateness and alienation that we experience by perceiving the world one dimensionally. So that. Fear of annihilation is just a fear with more and more realization. We come to understand that the, nothing will change. The eye will still receive forms. The ear will still receive sounds. The mind will still receive thoughts, which a lot of you might not like that idea. But the mind will still receive thoughts with more and more realization. We're not getting rid of anything but the idea of grasping at them will no longer arise. So there's a voluntary letting go of control. We learn to let life be, and we come to understand that there's nothing worth being attached to. It's just too, too much suffering. And it's not the truth of how things are. One of, one of the ways that it can be helpful to in explore this is when you go to a movie theater and, you know, the lights go out and you're looking at the screen, most people at some point get identified with the story. In fact, that's probably why we go. You know, we get out of our lives for a while and we can really, you know, veg out and notice, you know, a total different reality. There's a possibility of going into the movie theater and actually turning around and looking at the projector and seeing that maybe what we've been so caught up in, the storyline or the drama, is actually one, one dimension, it's flat. We can turn around, look at the projector. That's what we're doing here. We're looking at our own movie, we're, we're, we're questioning, how does this happen? How does a separate self happen? And then we we might even look at the film. If we get to the projector, look at the film. Actually what's happening is there's a picture, one frame. It's one moment, it's complete. Each moment is that complete and then it's gone. Each moment is complete, it's gone. Of hearing or seeing or smelling, tasting, touching, it's gone. It's because it's played at one speed that we think it's so real, or true, or t- totally a true movie. And we're all, we all agree on the speed that we're going and playing, and we, you know, it's amazing really, when you think of it, that it's only that it's because we're playing it at one speed. Hence, that's why we ask you to slow down. We're so used to going at that speed, how can we possibly explore? We're too conditioned. So speaking of movies, I thought I'd tell a little story here about um, just watching the movie. I actually could tell one little other one here. When my nephew was very little, he was just learning to talk. And I remember there was a a party going on and he was kind of looking around. And he came up to me and he pulled on my shirt and he said, this is all just a movie, isn't it? You know, we know when we're that age. You know, we uh, we have that sense of how unsolid it is. And I was like, "Who? Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, who are you?" <laughs> 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 Stephen and I have been so busy the last few years that getting a kind of a date or a night off, you know, we kind of forgot that it was a concept or possibility. And at the end of this last year, I thought, you know, we're going to go to a movie. You know, this is, this is, this is the one thing we're going to do this year. And I was determined. But we, we've been so busy, and it was so busy, I didn't even have time to eat breakfast that day or lunch. I think he must have gotten breakfast or something, but it was one of those days. And I came rushing in the house and I said, um, what do you think? Do you think we, will ha- we can do something? And he said, well, how about a movie? And I, and I said, well, we either have time for a movie or dinner. We can't do both. <laughs> and he looked kind of disconcerted. And so we both voted for the movie. And I thought we had a few seconds and I grabbed these egg rolls that someone had given us and I threw them <laughs> in the microwave for a minute and put them in this baggie and we jumped in the car and ran off um, so we were, we were we were just in time to get to a full movie theater this is just the beginning uh-huh. <laughs> we get to this full movie theater, we get in you know, just in time and we're, we're in the very back row because it's so full and there's one empty seat beside me and um I decided that maybe because Steve doesn't really like egg rolls that I'd get some popcorn and I like popcorn too as well as egg rolls. So I put um, the egg rolls in the bottom of the seat next to me and then my coat because you know it's cold in movie theaters and then I went and I got the popcorn came back and it was dark the previews had started and I sat down and it was you know that moment when you know (laughs) You're so happy, right? You're, you're just so happy because you're at the movie, and you can just forget everything, yeah? Uh, so I sat down, and we had the popcorn, uh, and the, the preview started. I was watching them very intently, and this, you know, big kind of bodybuilder type came kind of out of nowhere and came rushing by me and, you know, heading for the seat, right? And I had put my bag on top of the the egg rolls <laughs> my coat, and then my bag, and so he came rushing in, and um, he went to sit down, and I yelled out, "No, you know, no. and <laughs> everybody you know you know how it can you can remember it <laughs> we 're slowing down the film here, so I yell, "No, and everybody gives me a dirty look in the movie theater, and I pull out my my bag, and then he he 's trying to sit down, and I yell, "No." And and so I get my coat out, and then (laughs) I couldn't stop him. And he's he's (laughs) he sat on my egg rolls, (laughs) and I was really hungry. You know, I was just really hungry. And I didn't know if the egg rolls had gone down on the floor, (laughs) or if he was still sitting on them. And so it was, you know. And so I'm trying to note. I was noting disappointment, disappointment, (laughs) disappointment. And and so I said to myself, just watch the movie. So I, I started to watch the movie, but I was really hungry, and I started eating Steve's popcorn. And I eat popcorn as God intended. I eat them with big you know, handfuls, and I vacuum them in, and, and Steve eats popcorn mindfully, you know, he eats one kernel at a time, um, <laughs> and he's really generous, you know, and so <laughs> he hardly ever notices that I'm <laughs> vacuuming up the popcorn, um, and you have to keep in mind that we hadn't eaten that day, so at some point, you know, we're going along, and it's quiet in the movie, and it was, um he whispers to me, "Michelle, where are the egg rolls? <laughs> and, and I kind of went, mm. and I said, "Just watch the movie and <laughs> but I decided that maybe I should check, so I started putting my hand <laughs> not under not under him, but on the floor, trying to see if they had fallen through. And he gave me this really dirty look. (laughs) So I stopped and I was sitting there, I'm just trying to explain how to work with aversion and attachment here. And I started noting disappointment, disappointment, hunger, hunger. And then I went back to the popcorn. (laughs) I I started eating more popcorn. And Steve whispered, where are the egg rolls? (laughs) And so, I let go of control, and I just said, let's just watch the movie, you know. That's how life is. (laughs) We don't always get what we want, yeah? And I found over life that it's often where we don't get what we want, where we learn the most. And when I think about, when my sister died this year, it's like I noticed my peony bud. I just closed up because it hurts so much. And sometimes life hurts so much that we close down. So at the movie theater, I'm giving a mild example. I did you know, I, I have enough practice. It was like noting disappointment, wanting, just watch the movie. But that's what we can remind ourselves. It's like we're in our own movie and if we can just little in, and we do the best we can to pay attention, but let go of control of results. And what I see for us, and you know, this is this is the most important point I'm trying to make in this, is sometimes we really have to close down. Because something will hurt so much. That's totally okay. You don't have to rip the pedal open. Your awareness can be stronger than that. It's just being closed. And then when the conditions come together again, you'll start to open again, and it'll be that feeling of spring. The most wonderful thing about teaching this retreat in the spring is to remember that sense of how long a winter can be and how wonderful it is when the heart starts to open. Someone at the um, last retreat I taught described the retreat as transplanting herself into a bigger pot. And that's what we're doing, we come into the retreat and we're root-bound. And then we we transplant, we get a bigger pot. The metaphor of the film and the projector and the movie itself is the meaning of not-self or emptiness. Anatta means that bodily and mental phenomena are without substance, are void, and are uncontrollable. So, at times in the retreat where we get that sense of the substantialness, the insubstantialness of experience, or that uncontrollability of it, this is when we start to have insight into anatta or emptiness. When we understand emptiness, it doesn't mean that everything's imaginary and that we don't exist. People will have that misunderstanding of this. We're not annihilating anything. We're not having to get rid of anything. and We're not having to make anything happen. We just learn that we don't exist in the way we think we do. What we call I or me or you is dynamic. It's alive. It's changing. And each moment is an ever-changing result of innumerable conditions. We see in this that actually nothing can be clung to. That's why we can have a voluntary uh, letting go of control, because we see life is so alive, we couldn't possibly cling to it. So freedom is the cessation of clinging to the impossible. We understand that it's impossible to cling because it's moving. And this is the heart's release. This is liberation. Pablo Neruda described hatred as a loser. Hate is a loser. Greed is a loser. Delusion is a loser. And we have to ask ourselves, can attachment ever free us from attachment? And can aversion ever free us from aversion? Can fear ever free us from fear? And of course they can't. It's only in a moment of this pure motivation or the awareness not tied to the experience that we touch the truth of life and we're free. And you don't have to wait till two weeks from now or tomorrow for this experience to happen. You'll have moments where greed, hatred, or delusion will be gone and you'll taste that, at least that glimpse of freedom. And that taste for liberation will grow deeper. This is part of a story from a story called, A Story as Sharp as a Knife. And it's a story from the Haida Gwaii tradition in uh, the northwest of um, Canada. They're known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, to some of us. Uh, And a um, man named Swanton went to Haida Gwaii in 1900, in the fall of 1900, and tried to interview uh, the last... Myth tellers or storytellers in their culture before they died off, and this is just a little part of one that's very different than our normal way of um, expressing awakening. But I thought you might appreciate the beauty of the uh, metaphor. So sometimes, uh, when we're really touched by the universe, it's it's like described as the opening of a flower. This is from listening to the song of a bird. So this uh, group of uh, people, the canoe people, are going off on a journey. Then they set off, they say. After they traveled a ways, a wren sang to one side of them. And they could see that it punctured a blue hole through the heart of the one who had passed closest to it, they say. so deep, the sound of that bird, the song, you know, that openness of this being, their heart, was so punctured, there's this blue hole in the heart. That's a moment of completely being here. And you will have these moments of so utterly completely being here that the whole universe is reflected in you, and the whole depth of the universe is reflected in you. That's a moment of awakening. When I was in, um, I think, junior high school, I remember reading part of a Chinese poem where it said, The blue of the sky touches my clothes. And that inspired me to really search for how, how could one have that kind of understanding of interconnectedness so deeply, that the blue of the sky touched his clothes, his heart. It's a tragedy for us to stay so separate. You know, we don't have to live like that. And sometimes we can get a sense of um, the utter gratitude that we feel when we can really receive the gift of life and, and each moment is just enough. I wanted to end with a little story of, um, at the end of a young adult retreat, we, um, at the end of every young adult retreat that's been going on for some time, uh, the tradition lately has been to have the group get together in a circle at the end. And there's a very deep sense of profound, um, so profoundly being touched by the retreat. And some people don't say anything, but the idea is that if you want to say anything, we're in a circle and the the bell, this bell is in the middle of the circle, and you're meant to just come up and say something little and ring the bell and go back and sit down. And one, one young adult got up and he bowed to each direction. And when he bowed to each direction in one direction, he bowed to loneliness and then the next direction he bowed to lust the next direction he bowed to longing and then in the next direction he bowed to peace and then another young adult um, who was the type, a young man who you couldn't imagine would ever break down and cry in front of a group or maybe ever Uh, and he took the petals from the peonies that we had had on the altar. He took the petals from the peonies, put them in the bowl, started sobbing, and rang the bell, and sat down. And sometimes I know in life, you know, we can be uh, sad or troubled by so many things, but it's a wonderful thing to cry because we feel so loved, or that we understand so much from being so completely present in this world. And we can really get that we are getting just enough. Let's sit for a minute. Love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two our lives flow.